Commence primary ignition. Depend greatly on our own point of view. You must unlearn what you have learned. I'm looking forward to completing your training. Welcome to Coruscant Community College, a new podcast that focuses on studying Star Wars as text. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we'll continue sharing the methods we've developed to lead students through a critical study of film. In this episode, we're doing an overview of setting and design, as well as covering aspects that focus on characters and the fictional Star Wars universe at large. So like cinematography, sound, and performance that we've already covered, setting and design can easily be broken down into three sub-aspects. So that's how we're going to set this up for you today. The first sub-aspect we want to talk about is locations, which is the place where a film or television series is produced. Now, these could be real-world places or sets that are constructed on a movie studio backlot or a soundstage. But essentially, it's just any place where a film crew will be filming actors and recording their dialogue, whether they use it in the actual film or not. And for this aspect, uh, we're going to give you guys a cheat sheet like we did earlier with cinematography. And so if you want to refer to that, it should be attached in the show notes. And it will also be found on our website. So we're going to take a look at two examples really quickly for locations. The first one, if you look at image A. Now this is a picture of Mustafar from episode three, Revenge of the Sith. And this is not a real location. I think we can all pretty quickly figure that out. And what this is, is this is just a combination of a soundstage and a green screen where the actors would be and then computer-generated images to create this hellish landscape. On the other hand, image B is a real-world setting. This is Skellig Michael, and most of us have heard that name, uh, standing in for Octo. And I, like, I picked this picture because it has tourists on it, and this is literally a place that you can go uh, that stands in for a place where Luke is found in Last Jedi. An interesting thing about uh, Skellig Michael I think according to the behind the scenes information from The Last Jedi, it's like a protected zone. I don't know what exactly they call it, but I think it's the equivalent of like a national park. So there's very limited things that they can do from a production standpoint. And you can see some of it in the behind the scenes video where it's like they had to construct rigging so they wouldn't damage or alter the landscape itself. Whereas in like Musafar, if you look at the behind the scenes stuff, it's just like a set. And I think like Pinewood Studios and a bunch of green screen behind them. So it's like whatever platform that they're walking on and then a lot of green screen uh, kind of surrounding them. Right. And we should mention that uh, the thing with Skellig Michael, too, is that, all, of course, all the exteriors are and the wide shots are, are Skellig Michael. But there mm -hmm. are instances that where, where things are set on Octo that's actually not on Skellig Michael because of the limited access and time right. they had there. But it's it's basically seamless. You can't you can't tell where they are, and that's just how good the filmmaking is. I was recently looking at the Mandalorian because they do a new process. I don't know if you saw this, Craig, where they use like LED back screens instead yeah. of green screen on the Mandalorian. And the purpose behind this is that they would actually project 
the landscape behind and around the actors while they're acting. And I think that's just like a really interesting way. It's kind of a blend of both. It's a little bit of green screen and a little bit of kind of a real life location, meaning that like the actors can actually see the landscape that they're in. Have you seen any of those set photos? Yeah, those are fascinating. The, yeah. the documentaries um, on on Disney Plus too, where yeah, it's seamless when you're watching it. The show you you wouldn't have you would have no. thought that that was all outside, and it's literally all inside with television screens, for lack of a better term happening in the background that they're interacting with. Like you said, visually interacting with, they can see in real time what they're supposed to be seeing uh, as their characters. And I think like to go off of the idea of locations and why they kind of might be important to pay attention to, I think it brings the issue of world building into the fore because especially with sci-fi and fantasy, you have these worlds that are so different than ours and it affects life and how the kind of background characters and how the char- just characters in general interact with each other. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about set decoration and props. Now, there is a slight distinction between these two. The biggest difference is that the characters interact with props and set decorations are not usually interacted with at all, but are just objects that surround the character somewhere on the set. So these are kind of related. The set decoration items are usually used to enhance the visual setting. From one of our earlier episodes, it makes me think of when you see Ray's home in the fallen AT-AT in The Force Awakens. Like the little toy that she has of the X-Wing pilot sitting on like a bookshelf, basically. All those little things that are inside her house would all be set decoration. A really good example of a set decoration that can become a prop is Luke's X-Wing door in The Last Jedi. For most of it, it's just set decoration. I mean, it's a door, they kind of walk through it, um, but then I think Chewbacca like kicks it down at one point, right? And that becomes then a prop because he's kind of interacting with it. And the big thing with these two is that we want students to look at kind of the background, look behind the characters, look at the, the setting that they're in, And look for the little details that bring some richness into the story. And I think Luke's X-Wing door is a great example. Because if you ask yourself, why did he use his X-Wing wing as his door? What can we learn about the setting or the characters from that little detail? For me, it says that Luke has given up on ever trying to get off that island. He's taken apart his ship and used it to build a home. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's he's absolutely given up. He's basically making this his permanent home and taking the thing that could get him off to establish this place as his new place to be. As far as other props, um, they can be used by designers to help establish place or time period. I think the biggest difference between like the prequel movies and the original trilogy is the level of polish that a lot of set decoration has. Like if you look at the blasters, the Naboo blasters or the Naboo starfighters, right? How there's like tons of chrome. It's all super clean, well-designed. And then you look at like the grimy X-Wings from A New Hope. Just based on that alone can give a viewer a little bit of a sense of time or place as far as Star Wars. I think that's probably a little bit stronger in just general movies, like overall. If you see someone with a cell phone, and they, it's a giant brick cell phone that puts it in a certain time and location. If you see him using like a razor flip phone 
okay, that's a time and a location. If they use an iPhone, that's a time and location. And so the props can help establish the setting for a film. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a really good point. I mean, the, f- the phone itself, I think, is a perfect way to kind of figure out what where things are set when you're watching, uh, not Star Wars, obviously, but a lot of a lot of a lot of movies and television shows, you see a payphone. I mean, that immediately puts you in a certain time frame. And yeah, those razors. I mean, I'm I'm rewatching Bones with my wife right now, and that's, everyone's got a razor because before the iPhone, that was the phone that everyone had. I had one too. Um, and yeah, now iPhone is what you see, and you can tell which which iPhone it is, and I can give, roughly give you the time period. Uh, but I did want to also comment on what you said about the prequels and that being a point of contention for a lot of people. Why does th- why do things look new and shiny when it's supposed to be in the past? And I love what Lucas had said and some other people had said about remember cars in the 50s and the way they look versus cars in the 80s. I mean, they're mm. sleek and so much chrome and, you know, things don't necessarily progress in the way that you think they do. No, I really like that point. I hadn't actually heard that quote, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think it was Lucas. I may have attributed it to him incorrectly, but um, I'm sorry, George, if you're listening. <laughs> My wife and I were just watching Captain Marvel, and that's another movie that uses locations and set decoration and props to establish setting, time and place yep. uh, when she falls into the blockbuster. Well, we know that it's you know at a certain point in time, those blockbusters don't really exist anymore. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. So we have a couple of things um, in the cheat sheet to kind of hammer through what set decoration and props um, are good examples of those, I should say. If you if you scroll down to image C, you see set decoration uh, for the interior of the Millennium Falcon, and you can tell pretty quickly with the yellow and how clean it is that this is not from the original trilogy. This is from Solo. And I remember when when Solo was being promoted that this was, uh, this was a thing a lot of people talked about, was to see how different it was and jokes started to come out about, you know, what Han had done to that ship when he finally got it. (laughs) Um, But it's very intentional. You know, it does uh, this, in this case, it does very clearly set the movie in the past because it looks new. The ship that we've seen and we're very familiar with looks new as opposed to the old beat up version that we see later on. I think that was one of the most interesting things when uh, Solo first came out was that the Millennium Falcon looked really different from an interior perspective. It almost looks a little unrecognizable just because like the level of cleanliness. I'm looking at the, the image C where it, it's like perfectly white walls and ceiling. The floor is shiny and mirror-like. Yep. And that does not fit my image of what the Millennium Falcon looks like. Exactly. So uh, moving on to image D, I have... Uh, we have for you here a a shot of the carbon freezing chamber on Bespin. And the reason that I selected this image was because I think it does an excellent job of creating dread. I mean, you can't even, there's nothing happening in this scene. There's no actors on set in this photo, but it immediately looks scary and dangerous. And it's kind of that, again, back to that hellish landscape type of thing from, from Mustafar. Uh, everything's very mechanical. And it sets the scene. The lighting, of course, it plays a big part, but I think it's a very effective piece of set decoration. Yeah, and I think uh, the lighting, the smoke on the bottom, everything kind of sends the signal that this is a place of danger. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the moment when Vader is getting his suit put on at the end of Mm -hmm. Revenge of the Sith. There's not a particular reason why that 
it just the imagery, uh, the color, it's just kind of evocative of of the Sith. And maybe that's just me reading into it because I think of Vader when I think of this scene, but yeah, no, I mean, it goes back to our, our discussions on color and why those are important too. Yeah. Um, if we go down a little bit farther, uh, images E, F and G, this is kind of a collage actually, cause it's, it's the same image in three different forms. This is the Jedi temple on Coruscant that's taken from a concept drawing to the actual physically constructed set. And you see in the middle that you have a small little model built, looks like for scale. And I just thought this was fascinating just to see the steps that would take, uh, that that the designers would take to create that set. And they're not just gonna grab some grab a hammer and some nails and just start throwing things together. It's gonna be a long, rigorous process to bring those images to life. And I think if you take all three kind of sets you know, the brand new Millennium Falcon, you take the carbon freezing chamber on Bespin and the Jedi Council chamber. And you ask yourself the question, just based on the props, the set decoration and the location, what can we learn about the people who live here? What kind of people are they? You know, what do they do? What do they enjoy? What do they fear? And you start getting the, you start asking these questions about the people themselves And I think it can uh, lend you kind of an interesting lens to look at movies where you're not just focused on the characters themselves, but the world they inhabit and how that affects maybe their actions and who they are as people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. You look at how austere it is. I mean, that's that very much speaks to the way that the Jedi comport themselves. Yeah. Well, I also think in um, episode two, they have a couple shots of the interior of the Jedi Temple, not just the council chamber. And thinking back to those where they have these big soaring statues, but really it's almost cathedral-like on the inside, where there's these tall vaulted ceilings. And there's a bit of like grandiosity about the Jedi Temple that kind of conflicts with the simplicity that they like how they dress. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting nod to the fact that maybe the Jedi are a little too prideful or have kind of lost their way a little bit. That's kind of what I get from it. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I've heard um, discussions about Yoda, especially feeling completely out of place. For those of us that were introduced to Yoda in Empire Strikes Back, he felt at home on Dagobah and, you know, those humble, the humble abode. Mud hut almost. Exactly. And and now it's in this very fancy Jedi temple. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the interesting things that when you're looking at the architecture, the, the location, the set design, all this, you know, it, it brings up these interesting points. So do we want to talk about uh, the props picture then? Yeah. Let's jump to that. Okay. And as we scroll down, we can see image H, which is just a picture of some selected props from the Star Wars films. And I know, Matt, you had some thoughts that came to mind immediately about this picture. Yeah, well, I just think it's really interesting, the comparison of the blasters and the design that kind of goes into them, all the weapons in general. But what kind of struck me was the difference between Ray's blaster and is it like a snowtrooper blaster to the right of it? Yeah, I think it might be. Yeah, it's it's definitely Imperial. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. But just the design, the the color, the fact that Ray's is kind of rounded um, it's got that long barrel. Uh, down below, I believe, is Leia's. I think that's Leia's. On the, the on long the barrel. And yeah. then obviously Han's. Yep. When you're just looking at them, I just 
it, it brings questions to mind about like as the designers are putting these together, like what are they imagining these weapons came from? And you have the imperial designs, which are kind of they look mass produced. And a lot of the rebel weapons seem like they've been cobbled together. Mm-hmm. And again, it just goes back to, you know, this idea of who are these people? And kind of those world building questions come from that design perspective, the little background details that aren't the center of attention. I don't know. I just find it interesting that those kind of questions come up. Yeah. there. I mean, there is personality to these, uh, to these props that we either attach to the people that, that had them, or I think they, they kind of have personalities of themselves. It makes sense. Like that, that, uh, that raised blaster is very unique. You know, that mm-hmm. I can't see, I know Han gives it to her, but I can't see Han Solo shooting that gun. Yeah. You know, it's almost, it's almost feminine in its design. I think describing them as having personality is a, is a good way to put it. Did you have any thoughts about the the props themselves? Uh, I just thought it was interesting that this particular picture had things from at least two different trilogies. Um, that looks like, I believe that's Luke's, is that Luke's lightsaber? It looks like his from, from Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And those are, it looks like um, chest plates from some kind of trooper, but definitely not, not of the clone variety. Right. And not, not from the sequel trilogy. And you got Ray's staff mm-hmm. as well. Yep. And that, even that's interesting where um, at the end of Rise of Skywalker, how Ray takes part of her staff and turns it into her lightsaber. And some people were kind of mentioning that they saw, they felt like they saw different colors in Ray's lightsaber. Like there's a part like right at the end of her lightsaber where it feels like it has different colors. Yeah, you, did you hear yeah. anything about that? Yeah, I remember hearing about that. When it, as it turns on, it, like it, it goes through a little cycle. Yeah. Powering up. And I found that like a really interesting design choice. That's kind of it. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't have too yeah. much to say about yeah. like props and stuff. It's, yeah. it's more the biggest point that I would say is that these are little things that don't often get a lot of attention. And that's exactly why you should draw attention to them is because someone – somewhere had a job to design it and then produce it. And like they were influenced by something. What were those influences? Why do they matter? Why did they choose them for that movie? Yeah. It's fascinating. So at this point, it is an excellent time for us to mention that we've been taking you through a very similar process that we take our students through. Throughout the year, we're setting them up with knowledge about cinematography and sound and performance and set design as a precursor to the work that we do with Star Wars. So that when at this point, we can introduce a worksheet that that we'll use, a template that we use when we're watching the films. And that same worksheet is going to be available to you guys here in the show notes and on our website. And I should also mention that at this point, that we have six total aspects. We've covered four of them. The last two are pretty brief to explain, and these are the last two that we'll introduce right before we start watching the film. The first one is simply just taking notes on the characters. In my class, we're going to watch six movies, and there's a lot of characters. 
And I wanted them to keep focused on not all of them, but a vast majority of them. So they're going to be looking at physical descriptions, character traits, and relationships to other characters. And really, I'm just giving them a grid that they can put down whatever they can come up with to kind of keep straight the different characters throughout uh, both the original and the prequel trilogy. I did want to say for the worksheet, yeah, along those lines with the worksheet, the same steps that we've kind of taken with this podcast are the same steps we take with students. So we're introducing film and the study of film really for the first time. This is not something that I don't think really any of our students have ever really considered or thought much about. And so we would literally take them through the same process. Obviously, there's more examples, different examples, you know, because we're in a classroom. But it's that same step of here is how we are breaking down film and and reading it like a text, like any other text that we would uh, take a look at in class. So along with that worksheet, there's generally three columns. The first column is writing down what I noticed, I being the student. And we have that in the first column for the simple reason that all of this begins with being an active viewer. It's something that we as teachers strive for is is having our students be aware of what they're reading or what they're watching. And I think especially with film or any kind of video, there's a habit that students fall into and most people I think fall into, which is the consumption mode. They put on a YouTube video, they're watching a movie and they're like in the popcorn and soda mode. They're just watching it. They're just consuming. And we want to get away from that towards a active viewership where you are trying to analyze and trying to find deeper meaning in the kind of discrete parts of the video. And I think for you and I, Craig, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before where it's hard at this point for me to watch a film and not analyze it. Yeah, Yeah, I've had that conversation. It's just, it's changed the way I have consumed movies. I can't go back after kind of taking that first dip into analyzing and reading it as text. It's hard for me to go back. And sometimes it's hard for me to just turn my brain off and watch a movie. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've jokingly had that conversation with students that you've ruined movies for me. They'll, they'll kind of say, you know, because they, <laughs> they have to, they, they, they start doing it and then you do it instinctively. And yeah, right. I, I do that. Sometimes I can kind of go in and out for that. Uh, but especially cinematography, if I'm, especially if I'm watching something that I've seen multiple times, I might challenge myself mm-hmm. to say, okay, let me watch camera angles. Let's see how the composition is is set up here, just so I have another kind of thing to be doing instead of completely checking out. Now, that's not not to say that I never just sit and watch a movie or a television show, but it is kind of always there under the surface as a thing that you can do. Yeah. And so that's really, you know, as far as our worksheet, that's our first column. Be an active viewer. What do you notice? The second column is all about analysis. And so when I say analysis, I am thinking like read between the lines. What is the deeper meaning here? And so we call it significance. What is the filmmaker trying to tell me? And so once you've noticed something, like you just said, camera angles. Okay. Why? (laughs) Why is the filmmaker using that particular camera angle? Is it telling me something about the characters or about the story? 
One of the examples that we use in class is from the first Avengers movie when the camera goes from all the way upside down and focuses on Loki's staff. And the same exact shot is used in Black Panther when Killmonger first comes onto the throne. Those kinds of shots have a particular meaning within the context of filmmaking. So what is it they're trying to tell me? So after that, that moment of noticing, of analyzing forward meaning, next comes a connection to text, to self, or to world. And this is something we try and do with our written text in class as well. Can you make a connection from the text to another text? In this case, from one Star Wars movie to another. And usually that one's pretty easy. There are a lot of connections within the Star Wars universe. Um, text itself. Do you see an element of yourself within one of the characters? I think that's one of the most powerful connections that a viewer can have with a film is when you see elements of yourself or your own struggles or own triumphs in a character in a movie. And then text to world. Are there elements of the film that connect to the larger world? There's a really interesting theory that I read about where each of the Star Wars trilogies corresponds to a world conflict in real life. The one I, I remember very easily is that the original trilogy is kind of a riff on World War II. Yeah. I mean, there's some very clear yeah. the Imperial guys are Nazis. analogies or you know connections between Nazis, fascists, and the Empire. Sure. And then I want to say that the um, prequel trilogy had connections to the Iraq war and kind of the political machinations surrounding that. And then there was an element of, of meta commentary in the sequel trilogy, as far as um, like Kylo is very much a star star Wars yeah. Vader right. fanboy. <laughs> and so it's like, it felt like there was some kind of commentary on star Wars fandom itself and obviously a lot of conflict within the fandom and what is a Star Wars movie and what is not a Star Wars movie. There's just a whole bunch of connections and yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that a lot. I think that that's, that's the way you're going to get engagement with students if they, if they can get to that next level. And next episode, we're going to talk a lot about Hero's Journey uh, and having kids kind of realize that they're kind of all Luke Skywalker in their own way. And that's how you're going to get buy-in. And that's why you see kids when they watch the descent of Anakin, that they, they feel bad for that. If you, if you do it properly, they, you know, they're invested in that and that's, it becomes a legitimate tragedy. And I also think that's part of the enduring power of star Wars is that we all feel like Luke, even kids today. The final aspect that we have our kids track and that we'll introduce to you guys today is it's called the galaxy, which is really just the star Wars universe at large. It's new for a lot of them, surprisingly. And so this is a, an opportunity for them to, to learn the rules of, of star Wars and to be able to track that and to give them something else to be kind of keeping track of as they're going through the galaxy can also be divided into three sub aspects. The first of which is the force, which obviously there's so much on that. It, you couldn't really, you need a whole worksheet for the force unto itself, but we keep it pretty simple. And 
essentially what they're looking for is the way the force is described. And the first film that they watch is A New Hope. So we have them pay special attention to Obi-Wan Kenobi's speech to Luke, describing how the force works and what it is in that really brief uh, recap, which is also beautifully juxtaposed with the very next scene. You see Darth Vader using the force. And I believe that's the first time we actually can tangibly say, this is where I saw the force used uh, in Star Wars, where he force chokes uh, Admiral Mahdi. And it's interesting here that you can make the point that in each of the Star Wars movies, more or less, you can see a different power, a different way that the force is used. There's a there's a pattern there where when Obi-Wan Kenobi shows up in Empire Strikes Back as a force ghost, that's the first time we've seen that power. That's not in A New Hope. And so there is this, this pattern's been established that there will be new things in each film. Yeah. And, you know, it amazed me the first time I did this how few of my students had actually seen Star Wars. Most of them, and by most, I mean probably 60%, had um, not seen a Star Wars movie. And that's a pretty informal thing, but at this point, I always ask. Most of them have heard of Star Wars, but they haven't seen it, which I always get shocked at because it's such an influential series of movies for anyone who enjoys movies. Um, and the force is something so ubiquitous. It's kind of, it's kind of woven into our backgrounds for like you and right. me, Craig, for our kids, they, they don't really know what it is. So this is kind of the purpose behind this is just understanding the world that we're taking a look at a little bit. And then the, uh, the second two sub aspects for the galaxy that we have kids look at. The first one is culture and technology where we're having them just look at the buildings, the weapons, the vehicles, and kind of going back to what we mentioned earlier with set decoration, there are obviously key distinctions between the prequel and the original trilogy, but you also have, depending on the environments in each of the movies, you have different vehicles, you have different weapons, and you can actually start talking about culture. Uh, You talk about the Ewoks and how their vehicles are very primitive, or you see things on Hoth that are adapted for the snow. And so you have an opportunity to kind of talk about why these things are the way they are. And the final sub aspect that we have them look at is species because Star Wars is, I mean, you think of the, the cantina scene, which is like one of the most, one of the most famous scenes in the original film is just populated with so many different kinds of creatures that that's a scene we watch and it's the first movie we watch that say all right see how many different kinds of aliens you can pick out so they're looking at are the what do the humans look like how are they dressed what kind of aliens do you see and then of course droids so they're just trying to keep track of all the different types and it's fun to see especially some of the people that have never watched it ask you for the names of these things definitely so your assignment for this episode is to watch the background. Look at the set, look at the decoration, the props. Part of a director's job is literally to direct the viewer's eyes. Fight against that temptation. Look where you're not supposed to. What do you find? What do you see that adds to the story or characters? Pick a scene, pick a movie, and then just watch and pay attention to the background. What do you notice from the characters who aren't the main focus. What do you notice about the props and the set decoration? 
What does that tell you about the time, the place, the people that are in that world? I think a great example would be taking a look at the Sanctuary episode of The Mandalorian. I think it has some very interesting contrasts. I agree. That is a good episode to look for examples. Thanks, Matt, for pointing that out. And we just want to say thank you so much for listening. Please check out our teaching resources at coruscantcc.podbean.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us or just say hello, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram at coruscantccpod, or you can email us at c3podfeedback at gmail.com. Coruscant Community College. Because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone. This podcast is not endorsed by the Walt Disney Company or Lucasfilm Limited. It is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. All names, sounds, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Disney and their respective trademark and copyright holders. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Coruscant Community College unless otherwise indicated. Nothing more will I teach you today. You've taken your first step into a larger world. We will watch your career with great interest. what you have Coruscant Community College. Because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone.